0: This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is interior designer Robert Stillen. The son of an entrepreneur, Robert was raised to go into business. As a boy, he read the Wall Street Journal and dreamed of a career in private equity. When he moved to Palm Beach as a young man, he found himself drawn instead to design opening up a shop and taking on local projects. Decades later, Robert is one of the industry's most celebrated talents, regularly featured on El Decor's A-List and the AD100. I spoke with Robert about how he gets around the problem of clients not wanting their homes photographed, how he made art a crucial part of his business, and why a small firm is perfect for high-end projects. This podcast is sponsored by Universal Furniture. The new Coastal Living home collection, Weekender, is a breath of fresh air for interior design enthusiasts. This stunning collection seamlessly blends the relaxed charm of coastal living with a touch of contemporary elegance. With warm woods, time-worn finishes, an abundance of rattan and soft boucle, a sea of blues and soft whites, and a touch of acrylic that lends a modern feel the Weekender collection transports you to a serene retreat without leaving the comfort of your home. Whether you're looking for a laid-back vibe or a more polished aesthetic, Weekender offers a versatile range of furniture options to help you create a space that reflects your personal style. Now available at universalfurniture.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Hooker Furnishings. Hooker Furnishings knows a thing or two about quality furniture and intentional design. For 99 years, the company has offered innovative on-trend products that span across a multitude of design styles and price points, and is dedicated to designing, manufacturing, and delivering furniture your clients are sure to fall in love with. From upholstery furniture in premium leather or fabric, to case goods, lighting, and decor, Hooker Furnishings genuinely offers something for everyone, residential, hospitality, and contract projects. Visit hookerfurniture.com to learn more. And now on with the show. I want to understand the dynamic of being the only boy, eight children, a relatively small town in Wisconsin, Set the scene for us a little bit. Help us understand what uh,
1: what that time was like. So I was born in 1965. I am the only son of eight children, and I was number six. My parents were the children of immigrants who came to the United States for a better opportunity, and my parents were, you know, aspirational people who wanted a better life for their children. We were Catholic. My at that point in time, my father had done. F- fairly well he went on to do even better than that but like he was successful and you know young aspiring he was involved in banking and insurance and also our core business in our family was like logging and lumber and so he was sort of doing all those things and um i was meant to be the i was the heir apparent i was supposed to like go to college get educated come home take over the family business get married have children and be like you know the Prodigal Son. The Prodigal Son. I mean, I think the perfect everything.
0: At one point during a previous conversation we had, you talked about being the caretaker in your in your family, and it and it sounded as though from a from a young age you realized that that was to be your role.
1: As far back as I can remember, I mean, my dad was, he was an entrepreneur and he he worked a lot and he was busy. He was gone early in the morning and he didn't come home until like six thirty, seven o'clock at night. And he used to always say, if you want to have a nine to five job, you're going to have a nine to five life. If you want more, you have to do more, you have to give more. And so like when I was a kid, I was always I jealous of my friends whose dads worked, some of them for our company. <laughs> and their, da- their dads got finished his work at three o'clock in the afternoon. And so their dad came home and played basketball with them and played baseball and did all the sports and whatever. And my dad didn't do that. Not because he couldn't, because he just was building his business and his little empire in northern Wisconsin, and so that was what more what I got exposed to. My dad took me everywhere. He took me to meetings. He had me reading the Wall Street Journal when I could read, basically. <laughs> and I was always sort of around that and was like this little man boy. Um, and and in my family, you know, everyone was sort of looking to me to like make decisions and help. And I was, you know, I organized our trips and made reservations when we went to dinners and planned events and just all that kind of stuff. You know, when I was, when I got to a certain age, I became like the bartender when my parents had parties <laughs> and yeah. So it was all kind of like taking care.
0: It really sounds as if your father was, was priming you.
1: Yes. I mean, I, yeah, I yes, I mean, yeah, absolutely. He was not expecting me to be an interior designer. (laughs) I was, by the way, I wasn't either. My dad had this dream of me becoming a a lawyer because he wanted to be a lawyer and he didn't even get the chance to go to college, let alone law school. So that was kind of his plan. And I had been felt for years that I just didn't belong in this small town. I didn't relate to people. And, you know, I I did, but I always felt like I was having to be somebody else and i mm. couldn't really be who i was and and so i just I, I knew that there had to be something else that was better for me and then i ended up my dad had always raised me do what you love if you love it it'll never feel like work you'll always be successful you have to follow your dreams follow your passions all that stuff he told me all that you can do anything you want you can be whatever you want so i go home and i say oh, i want to go to college in the east <laughs> he's like you you do <laughs> i said yeah He's like, are you sure you don't want to go someplace like, you know, Lawrence University, McAllister, like he's naming all these places that I could go in the Midwest. And I was like, nope, I want to go to the East Coast. He just kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? He never said, okay, but I just pushed forward and he paid and let me go. And that's what happened.
0: So what made you want to go to Skidmore? I almost
1: didn't go there. Okay. What happened was I didn't apply to Skidmore originally. And then I was looking at schools, and I was driving from St. Lawrence, way upstate to Boston, and I was driving on the thruway, and and I see the sign, Saratoga Springs, Skidmore College. And my (laughs) cousin was with me. We had my dad's Mercedes. And I was like, you know what, let's just stop and look at this place. And so we did. And it was already too late to apply. But I decided to go. I thought I loved the town, and I love the I love the campus and everything. And I was kind of enchanted by it. I remember driving up Broadway with all those beautiful houses, and I was yeah. just like, "Wow, this is a dream." And and the, and the admissions office was at the end of Broadway in this beautiful old carriage house, which I was like, "Oh my god, I'd like to live in this." <laughs> uh, and again, like I'm not I'm not an interior designer person at this time. I'm just you know a, a kid from Wisconsin who you know has dreams. So I go in and I say, like, I know it's too late to apply, but like, is there any way I could apply? And they were like, Do you have your application? I said, I do. Do you have your records? You I did. So I did an interview, I applied, I got accepted, and I ended up going there.
0: Amazing. And at the time, what did you what did you think you wanted to pursue?
1: Well, I went there because I knew that I wanted to get a well rounded sort of liberal arts education, but I wanted to study business. I would not do that today. And like my own son, when it came time for him to go to college, he kind of wanted to do the same thing. He went to NYU and I was like, I said, I don't think you should do that. I think the people in my life who are really successful business people are well-educated people first. And if you feel like after you get a a good liberal arts education that you want to study business or something else, that's what graduate school is for. And like, I didn't, I didn't understand that when I was 18 years old. I didn't really understand that whole process and, and, and the method. And I was in such a rush to get my education and to be successful and to succeed and to fulfill my dreams and everything. But <laughs> I just wanted to fast track every single thing that I could. And um, that definitely changed my life. And I really went there because that's what I wanted to do. If I went there now, I would study art. Right.
0: You also meet your your future wife at, at at school, if I recall. Becky, Becky, yes. Becky, yeah. So tell me about that.
1: We um, met on like the second day of college through a mutual friend, and we were friends for like a year or two. And then I think I think the end of our sophomore year, beginning of our junior, year, we started dating, and then we ended up living together. And we graduated, and you know, we wanted to be together, and. Couldn't decide where we wanted to live. We sort of like, I wanted to go to New York. She didn't want to go to New York. But anyway, long story short, she was from Palm Beach. We decided to take six months and go live there and figure out what we were going to do. And six months led to longer. And that's kind of how I got into this career. I have this very entrepreneurial spirit from my father. And I was like, I need to have a career here. What am I going to do? And, you know, there's only so many things you can do. So I decided that I was going to open a lifestyle store, which was kind of a much newer thing in 1988 mm. than it was today. You know, you didn't have, I think, you know, there was like Crate and Barrel was in Chicago and that was it. Restoration Hardware might have been someplace in California, but there was not, you know, 300 stores or, you know, what, and nothing online and all that. And it all came from trying to, we had gotten a little house and we were trying to furnish it and it's like everywhere you go, you couldn't buy anything. And the the entire design industry was closed. If you didn't have a designer or an architect, you couldn't go. That was basically it. So I decided that I saw it as an opportunity and I would create this lifestyle store full of things that I liked and we liked and we wanted to live with and probably other people would like it too. But with no intention of being an interior designer, really, (laughs) it was was meant to be a a prototype store that I would then roll out all over the country, you know, in all major cities and, and build it up and sell it. That's really what I wanted to do.
0: So it was. It was really. It was a model, and you were thinking much more entrepreneurially about it. And yes. It was, yes. It was something you were going to spin out. Were there actual experiences in whatever the design-driven locations were that you went to that that turned you away because you sure you know, weren't a designer? What and what was that like?
1: Going to like the design center. I think it was in Fort Lauderdale, and they were like, "You can't come in here. You're not an interior designer. You're not an architect. You don't have a business license. You don't have a tax number." And then many antique shops at the time it was the same thing. It was like you are you. They, they literally would open the door, and the first thing they would say is, "Are you an architect or an interior designer?" And if you said no, they'd say, "Sorry, we're to the trade only." That was common. Yeah.
0: So, so it was it was really closed off. I I, I ask in part because I don't think people remember right. you know, how closed it was the, very
1: different. How closed off it was. Yeah. There was obviously no internet, and there were no there were not a lot of most. Furniture stores were tacky, and there was there was like Bloomingdale's and Ethan Allen, and I don't know, you know, and then some you know just random furniture places that were not great, and that was it. And everything else was sort of closed.
0: And so the shop that you started, where were you sourcing from? How did you how did you get it going?
1: I I, I, I don't know exactly how I start. I guess I must have just been reading magazines at that point. I probably was like you know getting Art, Architectural Digest and House mm. and Garden and. I don't know how beautiful and all those sorts of things. And, you know, those are the days of Vanity Fair and like, you know, fa- fabulous magazines in the eighties yeah. and nineties. Um, and I just started researching, we, uh, Becky and I liked, we loved going to California and it wasn't so much there. You, I feel, I feel like there, it was more accessible, but I don't think you could really buy so much if you didn't have, you know, credentials. So I I was like, okay, well, I gotta get credentials. So obviously like I incorporated a business and I got a tax number or whatever. And then we were just shopping around and I just started seeking out places that I liked and put together uh, a collection of new things and old things and um, started this store. Like everything to furnish a house, sofas, chairs, coffee tables, antiques and vintage lighting, accessories, pillows.
0: And you and you liked it, but you didn't think it was going to be your career was sort of how it felt.
1: I mean, I liked the creative part of it. And I liked the business part of it, which mm-hmm. I still do today. And and I thought that it was a business opportunity. I, I really did. I didn't see myself being a designer until one day, somebody came in and said, we like this and this and this and this. And oh, by the way, we bought a house on Lake Worth, and it's empty. It's 10,000 square feet. Could you help us furnish it? and i said of course and then, <laughs> and then i just you know learned how to do that made a lot of mistakes
0: <laughs> but but when you say mistakes things you things you wish you had done differently or i mean what like what what yeah, you learn the all
1: the – well yeah sure but i i went to a, talk a couple of nights ago that Bridget Romaneck gave and she Mm. was talking about, she really has only officially been in the business for like five or six years. And she was talking about all the mistakes you make, like not measuring properly, not measuring at all, guesstimating, (laughs) like all these things. And like, you know, you make a lot of mistakes. You know, I remember one time I, I made a custom, very expensive bed that was going into a bedroom with, it was like a bed and then a, a space to pass and then an armoire. And when it arrived, there was like Eighteen inches between the the sleigh bed and an (laughs) armoire that you could never possibly pass. Thank God it fit in another bedroom. So you know you like learn how to craft and repurpose and convince people that it was actually really oh no 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 I really meant for it to
0: go over here (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So that project got you going, and suddenly you discover okay I can do this, and 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 tell me how that progressed.
1: So then I thought, okay, I'm a business person. If you want to be in this business, what do you do to get business? Hmm. So I started researching that. and I was like, oh, you have to do a show house. So I learned that there was a show house called the Red Cross Show House in, pa- in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach. And I found the person who ran that and got in touch with them and said, I heard you're doing a show house and I'd like to do it. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and um, I definitely got, I was completely dismissed and dissed and... Maybe like a month or two went by, and this guy, Peter Warner, who was this antique dealer who was the head of it, called me up and said, are you still interested in that room? And I said, sure. He's like, well, it's available, and you can do it. You got to get over here right now, though, blah, 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 blah. And then I did that room, and it turned out great, and I got like local press and all that sort of stuff, and I was very proud of myself and all that, and then nothing happened until That was in the fall and then at the end of the season like palm beach really ended back in those days like april Mm -hmm. i think on april april 15th there's something around there this woman called me and said she wanted to interview me and she'd seen my work at the show house in the fall and she had bought this penthouse apartment on the lake with huge terraces and like six or seven thousand square feet and she was going to gut renovate it it had to be done in like 12 months and was i interested And so I went and met her and she said, you know, we want someone young, we want a better deal, we want blah, all all these things. (laughs) I said, Okay. And that was that was my first like official official job with construction. They were art collectors. You know, at the time, again, like I was just starting to learn about art and collect art, but like they had art that in those days in Palm Beach, people thought was kind of weird. Like man golden and cindy sherman and frank stella and sam francis and just all these kinds of people like that they had the land sheep that they paid a couple thousand dollars for <laughs> you know like all this stuff and so that was an incredible opportunity to a do all the interior architecture of this apartment completely gutted it and redesigned the entire thing and then i furnished the, the entire thing and then you know worked with that they collected all their own art but i worked with their art and installed it and all that and that was really the basis for what I do today. Right. I learned so much from them. They also, you know, they were probably in their 50s at the time, and Mm -hmm. they, you know, they'd definitely been successful for a while, and they'd they'd done it all before. So I learned a lot from them. I remember we were, it was delayed, and the contractor was asking for more time, and it was kind of like, it, it was supposed to be ready for Thanksgiving, and it was maybe October 15th, and I said, I think you should wait for Christmas. She said, no, we're not we're not waiting. She's like, I've done this before. If we don't move into this apartment, it's never going to be done. <laughs> like, okay. So I did it. And she was right. I mean, it got done. Another time I had wanted them to do a certain floor and it was expensive. Let's say it was 175,000. And so in the end, we chose a ceramic floor instead that was 75,000. And they came down and they walked in and they looked around and he said, I, we don't like this. And I said, I I don't, you know, that's what you chose. (laughs) He said, yeah, I know. He's like, it's not your fault. He's like, how much was that other one? And I said, it was 175. He said, tear it out, put it, put the one that you wanted in. And then he turned to me and he said, you don't have to be right all the time. You just have to have a few home runs. Sometimes you're going to make mistakes and just, you know, own it and move on which was and I was like 29 years old, like to have yeah. like this massive, you know, super successful, you know, businessman, real estate developer, tell me that kind of stuff is, you know, those are right. just great things. I've learned so much from all my clients and how to be a better business person and just how to, you know, run my business and all that.
0: We're taking a quick break from the show to let designers know about HF Collective. Hooker Furnishing's Premium Trade Membership Program. For just $99 a year, designers obtain access to designer pricing, exclusive invitations, collaboration opportunities, free swatch and finish samples, and a dedicated sales rep to help you take your client's project to the next level. No matter the budget or design style, Hooker Furnishings and its many designer-friendly brands are sure to have furniture that works for you and your project. Sign up today at hookerfurniture.com slash new customer. And now back to the show. Your business savvy seems to be part of your of your reputation, and it and it makes one curious: how do you apply that to your interior design business? So, what, what did you learn along the way that you that you put in place in your own firm? And, and has become just part of your practice.
1: Well, I, I, I knew like right out of the gate that like at that time, late, late 80s, early 90s, there was definitely a lot of a transition in the design world to becoming a legitimate business. Before that, mm. it was like housewife decorators or just like it wasn't considered, you know, as much of a serious business, even though even then it was a big, it was still a big business, but it was just, it wasn't taken seriously. There were lots of horror stories. There was lots of, you know, bad press about, you know, designers who weren't good good business people and overcharged and did this and did that, whatever. So I have a business education. I studied business in college and I'm like, I'm going to be a hundred percent legitimate business person. I'm giving budgets. I'm completely uh, transparent about what I charge, where I get things from, whatever. And I just went in to the business that way. And, you know, and I wanted, I didn't want, I wanted things to be clear cut and straightforward. And I, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I guess I kind of sensed that like this business is, every client is almost like a mini marriage. And so you get so intimate with these people and so close to them, I don't want to have the business parts of it being a problem all the time. And so I think that my that was my instinct to just really organized on the business side. And I knew how to do that. And we've always sort of operated that way. And and clients like it, they like, you know, they want to see a spreadsheet and they want to see a budget and they want you to be paying attention and they want you, I've always felt like, you know, and I say this to my clients all the time, like I'm a pragmatic person. Like I'm going to spend your money. Like it's my money. And if I think it's crazy, I know you're probably going to think it's crazy. And sometimes you're going to think it's crazy, but you're still going to do it. And if I had your money, sometimes I would think it was crazy and I would probably do it too. But like, sometimes you're not and like all that, but like just to come from that place, people appreciate it. It's not just about like, you know, fulfilling your fantasies and doing all these like creative things. Like it's a business and everybody, even if they say I don't have a budget has a budget and you know, it has to get done, has to get done on time and all those things are really important. And I, you know, and I feel like we've always taken all that stuff very seriously.
0: I, I want to come back to the timeline, but when someone says, "Oh yeah, we don't
1: really have a budget,"
0: how do you dial in on that and say, "No, of course you do." Like, you know, help me out here. Like, really? I mean, what
1: what is the budget? Then I then I I would give them a budget because I don't want I don't want anybody misunderstanding. Right. Basically, before somebody hires us, we give like you know a, a, we have a our contract which spells out how we charge and the fees and the design fees and this, and that, all those things. And then we usually give them a budget. And originally in the beginning, I always wanted to give a budget that was realistic. Like, you know, you size the person up and you're like, okay, this is a person who's probably going to do a plus. And so you give a budget for that. And this person's maybe like going to do a C plus and that's, you know, they might have more money, but you can just tell, they're not going to spend as much. They're not spenders. So you do that. What I what I learned, though, was that, you know, in, in interior design, just like real estate and many other things, buyers are liars in a way, and they, they don't really want to hear how much it costs exactly, because it's hard. Like, it's hard mm. for people. Most of my clients are self-made people, and, and I've learned in this job that people's ideas about money are formed in, like, the first 10 or 15 years of their life, and so they're always going back to the beginning, and they're like, oh, my God, that's $50,000, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I understand it. Like I, I get it too. Because guess what? Now I'm them, and I do it too. Right. So it, it's a real thing. So I used to give these budgets that were like, you know, this is going to be eight million dollars, and they're like, whoa, you're too expensive, <laughs> and I and I wouldn't get the job. Yeah. So so at some point, I got smarter, and I was like, I'm going to give a budget that is. This is the minimum budget that it's going to cost to do this project if you want your house to look and feel like all those pictures of my work that you liked. It, it cannot cost less. It can cost more. It's all going to come down to like, you know, choices and all your decisions and all that sort of stuff, but like it's going to cost at least this much. And then, you know, it's a it's a transparent conversation and they're prepared to right. like, we're up for that or we're not up for that and don't have to waste anybody's time and also don't have to come six months or 12, 12 months into the future, it's like, oh my God, this is so expensive. You didn't tell me it was going to cost that much. I don't want to, I can't live that way. So I like to just put it up front. Get all that out there. Yeah, get it right. all out there. Yeah. The other thing is that I think once you get all that resolved, you, you want to focus on the project. The project should be fun. It should be enjoyable. People should have a good time. Like this doesn't need to be like a torture. It should It should be really enjoyable. And and I think that like an enjoyable process results in an enjoyable home and a good life, and that all that. You know, I, want, I want people to have that kind of positive energy in their experience.
0: So, take a, take us back to Palm Beach and and, and how we how we transition uh, in in your career. So you you get this you get this magical client with this wonderful art collection that's that's teaching you so much about the business. How does that propel you forward? What happens for you next?
1: Well, then I just, you know, got a few, you know, started getting other jobs. And I think maybe like I had that job and that was great. And then there was maybe like a little bit of a lull. And then I I remember I got my first project published, which is actually something that I had done for myself. It was an apartment in Palm Beach. That was in House Beautiful in like the early nineties. I don't remember exactly when that was. And I was always like working that angle and doing that. And then at some point, maybe around 1993, Becky and I divorced and I decided I didn't want to be a designer. So I sort of like took a little hiatus for a couple of years. I kept working for certain clients, but I really like I tried real estate. I worked for my family's company. My dad died and I worked. I had to manage my father's estate for a couple of years, which is literally a full time job because he was 68 years old and not planning to die. I got back together with Becky. We had our son and we sort of over time started living in East Hampton. And when I was in East Hampton, I, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do something again. A lot of people were asking me to help them with their houses. And I would go to the meetings and they would say, I would show them my projects in Palm Beach. And they would say, well, we want you to do a house in the Hamptons. And I was like, well, I don't have any houses in the Hamptons. And they're like, oh. And, then they, and I, I said, I'm working on my own house. We were building a house at the time. Mm. But then I have been friends for years and years and years with Waldo Fernandez from Los Angeles and he came to town and we were having lunch or something and I was telling him about that and he was telling me about his projects and he said, we should do projects together. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that sounds crazy or whatever. And then I slept on it the next day, I woke up and I thought, maybe we should, like what do I have to lose? So I called him, and he said, okay, let's meet for lunch and talk about it. We he, I meet him at that Betts, I got there first, he comes in, give him a big hug or whatever and some man comes up to us and says, are you Waldo? And we're, we look at this man, and we're like, who are you? <laughs> and he says, yes, I'm Walda." Turns out this man is like the brother of one of his clients. He just bought a house in the Hamptons, and that becomes our first client. So we did that job. And then we did a big house in Southampton for Denise Rich, which was really a fun project. And then kind of like, we weren't really getting any more work and we decided not to like do any more stuff more together. And then I just started like, you know, really focusing on getting projects in sort of the Hamptons and in New York. And uh, one thing led to another and here we are. Been doing that here, I guess, for 20 years.
0: And so much of your work, getting back to this earlier discussion about what you learned about the art world, I think people make a strong association with you and, and art did that consciously become b- part of how you how you thought about the design work that you did or was it that you ended up working with clients that had collections i know some clients you've helped them build and, and and expand collections
1: i mean i think that it does go back to that first job after doing that job in particular i couldn't imagine doing another project without art and it was hard then like it was a very different world like people didn't have budgets for art. Like now that's part of our budgeting process. It's like, this is your budget to furnish the house. This is your budget to renovate right. it. This is all these fees and all this kind of stuff. I and mean, oh, by the way, you need to have, you know, a $500,000 budget for art or whatever it is, something. Yeah. And that, you know, it's now been going on for at least 10 or 15 years. But prior to that, there was none and you would get to the end of the job and you'd have this beautiful, beautifully furnished house with no art in it. And people <laughs> were like, I don't want to spend any more money. And to get them to spend $50,000 was hard. But I was insistent on it and creative and, you know, figured out ways to get people to, to do it. And I was also doing it myself. And then, you know, I was starting to create my own places and show my own places. And they all had art in it. So I attracted those people and Right. And it just became very clear to me pretty early on that like I don't want to live without art and I don't see how anybody else could live without art. It's part of it's part of the whole thing. It's just it's what makes a home come alive. In my opinion
0: did you ever find along the way that the art world was a helpful barometer or financial indicator for where business or the economy or maybe your flow of clients would was going sometimes we look at the art world and oh it looks very overheated and we think oh yeah do we need to pull back i mean did you ever find it to be a reliable indicator of, of anything helpful for you from a business perspective? I mean, I
1: I have to be truly really honest with you for probably the last 20 years, what happens in the economy amazes me all the time. I mean, (laughs) particularly the fact that it continues to maintain itself and (laughs) succeeds a lot more than it fails. And I think Mm. that, I think that's because I'm a practical, pragmatic person and I find that that's true of most of my clients who are hugely successful people. Like, they're like, it's going to all fall apart, but then it doesn't. They're like, it's going (laughs) to fall apart, but then it doesn't. And like, they're engaged at the same time and they have their businesses and they're growing and doing all this kind of stuff and they're investing and buying, but they're also human beings who, like, you know, have certain values and all this kind of stuff. And like, all these like bubbles and all these things. Like, that's not really my client. My clients Mm. are. I don't have a lot of actually financial people. I have more like creative entrepreneurs is kind of my clientele, people who have built businesses that have real products and that sort of stuff.
0: So for your, for your design firm and how you think about it, once you finally settled in and said, Oh yeah, I really am an interior designer. This is gonna be my, my career. Right. What did you imagine as far as the scale and, and 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 size of a firm that felt reasonable to you? Do you do you like managing people day to day? Did you wanna have a, a, a firm where you were coaching people along? Or or
1: Well, the entrepreneur in me for sure wanted to create like the next Parrish Hadley or the next McMillan or something like that. I've never been able to do that because the clients want me. And mm. almost every client, when you know we get serious about our dating before we're going to get married, um, it's like, how much are you going to – the question I always is, how much are you going to be involved in this process? And they don't want me to say, I'm going to have this meeting and the next one and one after that, and then this person over here is going to take over the job and you're never going to see me again. They do not want that. They want me at every meeting and all that. So I can only make my business so big. And the only way that I can grow my business is by getting bigger jobs. So yeah, I mean, like I would have done that if that was in the cards, but it just was never kind of in the cards to go that kind of Parish Hadley, McMillan route. So I've always just focused on being kind of like a boutique design firm. And it's just evolved that we have a very core group of kind of families that we work for on a consistent basis and then every year we pick up a client or two and with new different kinds of jobs and lots of times they become they get added to that group and i think i told you this before like we're now we work for our client's children Mm. and they're all starting to get married and have babies and you know, there's a lot of the kids where we help them do their dorm room, and then we help them with their first apartment with all the hammy downs, and you know, <laughs> all they've just all you know. Now some of them are 40, and they have like you know three children, and they have you know an apartment in New York and a place upstate or whatever. And we've sort of done all those things.
0: Well, you you've also mentioned that many of your clients are very private people. They yes, didn't, didn't want their projects, didn't want their homes to be shown, and often that is, is challenging for a designer to be able to promote themselves when you don't have a lot of projects to send to mayor Russ or whoever, uh, to say this is what I'm doing. So how do you, how do you get around that? Or how do you grow? Well, I I don't, I haven't
1: done it for a while because we're so busy. We literally don't have the time, but I have done 15 show houses. So I did a lot of them in the Hamptons. I've done a couple in Palm Beach, and I did Kips Bay two or three times. And those make a difference because that's your opportunity. Mm. For me, like I've always felt like if I'm gonna do a show house, the whole reason for me to do a show house is to expand my client base and to get jobs. So I'm not going there trying to create some fantasy of my own i don't could care less about that my job is to go there and show what i can do for the kind of people that i want to work for so that that's what i've done and that's been hugely successful and i've been lucky because a lot of the stuff with the art and collectible design and I was very early to that game and I was able to, and I had already established all these relationships, like nowadays, young people can go to Gagosian and they'll, you know, if they, if they like them or whatever, they'll, they'll loan them something. But 25 years ago, they weren't loaning anything to anybody. I had to, (laughs) I had to work at that. I had to finesse that I had to build relationships, but I did. And a long time ago, when everybody else was getting stuff from the d d building, I was getting stuff from all these great dealers and the art of the galleries and all this sort of stuff to put in my rooms. And I was, you know, I remember jo- Joe Hykemian 25 years ago, I went into his place and I was like, I want to buy rugs from you, but I don't have the clients yet, but I'm going to have the clients. So mm-hmm. if you loan me that $100,000 rug, one mm-hmm. day I'm going to buy $100,000 rugs from you. And he said, Okay. He loaned every show I ever did, he loaned me a rug. I was the most expensive one. And the minute, when I got, when I was, it took about 15 years, but when I was able to start buying those rugs, guess who I went to first? Joe Hykenia. We're taking a quick break from the show to
0: remind you about Universal furniture. Get ready to elevate your space with Universal's all new modern collection, available for pre-order exclusively on their B2B storefront. This collection embraces a fusion of luxurious yet casual design elements, drawing inspiration from global styles and incorporating an array of materials featuring natural wood tones, warm stone finishes, cast aluminum accents, and soft metal finishes. By pre-ordering through their B2B storefront, you gain early access to this in-demand new collection. Shop now at universalfurniture.com newintroductions. And now back to the show. I think designers are always trying to figure out to the point you were just making, how do I engage and attract this client that can work at this very high level that I want to work at? How do I attract these, these well-to-do clients that don't just have a little bit of money to spend. They have have a lot of money to spend and they're, and they're willing to.
1: So that's what I did. I used show houses and i Mm -hmm. used my own personal homes you know my apartment in new york my house in the hamptons wherever i've lived or whatever and i've been able to like put together places that you know i might not have a Rothko, but i have some good art and when my when clients come to my house they want to buy everything they're like can i just buy your house you know or (laughs) they want can i get that what's that i want this i want that and that i did that on purpose like of course i wanted to live that way but i also leveraged Mm. myself and i used my connections i did all those things that you could do to be able to create an environment that my clientele would want and and because i was going after people who were private and didn't want to show cuz sometimes i can't even take somebody else to go see their house let alone photograph it or publish it like it's a job that exists but like there's nothing like it's just <laughs> it's-, it's in thin air but you know what if yeah. i also decided a long time ago like i want that job like the clients pay they, they do all the things that I want to be able to do you know the cost of that is that you're never going to get to publish it you're never going to get to photograph it well I prefer to have the opportunity and the experience and to you know have a successful business and all that than to glorify myself like that's not that important to me and I've figured out other ways to be able to do that but because I don't at the end of the day I'm a private person too and my public mm-hmm. persona it's me and it's genuine and it's authentic but like I wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't what you need to kind of do to be relevant in this business it's not that important to me i like to create like to do all that kind of stuff but when it comes to like getting attention and all that i am actually a little bit shy about that i've gotten less mm. shy because it's i'm also a business person I and mean, that's how i sort of justify it and do it and all that it's like you have to you have to have a presence. there has to be a face
0: Right, exactly. So, so along those same lines, tell me how you think about product licensing, for example, which is often a tool that people use to get themselves out there and to become known. How do you think about that?
1: I, don't, I have no problem with it. I think that, and and I think even today, you know, certain things come my way, and we and, and I talk with my PR person and to different branding people about like what I'm going to do because I will do mm. stuff like that, and we've almost done a lot of things. Part of it is because we're so busy, I don't have time to dedicate to it. And part of it is like, it just, they weren't, they haven't been the right things. But I want to do things, A, that are going to make me money. I feel like I've built my brand enough and my reputation. I don't need to make a bigger reputation, but I want to support my reputation and my brand. And I want to expand it. And I, you know, I want to like, you know, make a sustainable life for myself. So. For me, they're business opportunities to, you know, to grow and to, you know, create more security and equity for myself. And I want to do things that are interesting. And, you know, back in the day, I think there used to be sort of like taboo, like you you can't do a deal with like a low end thing or whatever. And I feel like my clients would say, what was the deal? And like, what did you give to get? And if, and if, if I created an interesting product that was maybe like a licensee and a lower end thing, but it was a good looking product and had high quality for the price range and all that. And it was a good deal for me. And I did well mm. financially on it. They'd say absolutely do it. If I did some deal like that and I made 25 grand, they would be like, are you an idiot? Why would you ever give your name, your brand, everything to some stupid little thing like that? So I'm interested in serious deals for serious projects that are interesting to me that are also going to be financially worthwhile because also I have to give my time. Like, you know, I, my day job is a good job and it's very, very, very demanding. And I have, you know, these people who are looking to me all the time to give them answers, pay attention, you know, be involved in their projects. So if I'm going to take time in addition to that, to work on these kind of extra projects, like it, it's got to be worth it to me.
0: Yeah, no, no, I I get it. And, and often, so many designers are are trying to find that that money while you sleep thing. That yeah, happens, for sure. Right? I, I mean, and I get it. And and people are trying to figure out how do I have less clients and more other things. And I wonder because you are such an entrepreneurial thinker, I wonder where you see the opportunities. Having the skill set that you have, what else can it be parlayed into? that seems more rewarding for you. What what do you see?
1: Well, we're try we're actually trying to figure that out. I mean, there's there are potential deals with like very not bespoke not design collectible but very high-end furniture companies where you can do a collaboration and if it's successful you can make a nice income for as long as it runs which could be you know some of them if they're really successful go on for 10 15 years some of them go on for three years but like you know we're talking six figure kind of income every year for a certain amount of time like that's appealing to me i've also thought i always thought that i would do my own furniture line that i would own it that i would produce it but that's, a, that's, a, that's another company. Right. I've also always been very interested in hotels. I almost went to hotel school. That would have been my other choice, like Cornell instead of going to Skidmore. I always wanted to create my own brand of hotels, You know, put together an investment group, build them, design them, and manage them, and run them. And sort of the, the concept would be to just make a hotel that I would want to stay in in every market that I would want to go to. So, but that's another career. But
0: hospitality, Robert. I mean, it just seems like it's so hot right now, and everyone is getting is. into. Goop is getting into hospitality, yeah, and RH sure. is expanding, right? I mean, so this is so this is my segue then to talk about young Dylan, your son. My son, see, this seems to be the way to lure Dylan into the business. Dylan, listen, <laughs> you're you're already, you know, you're in the business. Why don't you come help me launch the the hospitality division of of the still in family enterprise? Would that be appealing to him he's he's doing staging he's doing I
1: think it would. I think that if he wanted to do that, he needs to work for somebody who does that first like I'm at an age where i'm if I'm gonna do that, I'm probably not gonna go work for somebody. I would be more inclined to like maybe buy a small place and then be able to present that you know get it published all over the place to do a book on it you know all these things so that's what i would do but dylan yeah i mean if dylan wants to do that dylan should probably work for a hospitality company or two and then when he gets some experience we could form a company and do a project i'm not yeah i'm not opposed to that
0: yeah knowing your dad wanted you you know to go in a, in a certain direction and, and, and come into the, come into the business. Do you want that for Dylan? Do you sense that Dylan thinks you want that for him to come into your business in some, in some way? Or, I
1: mean, it's a good question. it's not something that we've talked about at all recently. I would only want him to do it. If that's really what he wanted to do. In fact, what I told him recently when he was in this transition, and as I said, your eight years, at. Uh, Ah, it's been a great experience, and you really have a great foundation. And you've shown a lot of things that I think are really important today. And we went through a lot of cycles during that time, and it would have been very easy for him to have seven jobs like most of his friends. And I was very persistent about the kinds of things that you like are relationship businesses, and you need to stay in relationships because just like me, when I'm hiring people, most of those people in the kind of creative entrepreneurial businesses that you want to be in, they want someone who's going to stick around. So to be able to have a resume today in 2023 and go to an interview and show that you've been in the same job and you worked your way up in a company for eight years is valuable in a way that it might not have been three or four years ago as much, but I think now it's more valuable than ever because people are tired of all these people who just like come and go. Yes. Like you you, you yes. just get them trained and you just feel like they're starting to like really pay off and they leave. So I think that's great. But I also said, you know, as I said, that job happened to you. And I think, you know, you should spend some time really thinking about what do you want to do, you know? So I just, I have to decide like, you know, which direction I'm going to go and do I want to create a separate company? Would I want to create a company with Dylan or somebody else? And, and, and how much time can I commit to that and still do my core job? And I mean, I, I know for the moment, I, I definitely want to have my core sort of boutique design business as my that's my main business and that's my bread right. butter and butter and I like it and enjoy it. And it's, it's demanding. It's very demanding. I don't think people, I don't think people really understand it. That's why anytime I ever get a client who thinks that they can do it on their own, I'm always like, go do it. Yeah. Do what good it's good like. luck to you. <laughs> yeah, good, exactly. A hundred percent. Have a good time. <laughs> yeah. Call me in a few weeks. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. You know, earlier you were talking about the, trying to size people up and say, okay, he's going to do A plus and yes. he's going to uh-huh. do C. I mean, did you get good at that? Could you size people up? And could you, because what I'm always curious about is, so all these people have all this money, but it doesn't mean that they're willing to spend it at the
1: same rate Absolutely. level. Absolutely. right? Yes, 100%. So how do you navigate that? Oftentimes the richest people are the ones who actually spend the least. So it's not, it's not about how much you have. It's about, it's mm. about a vibe. It's about like how you want to live your life. And I think a lot of people with money could live their lives better. Like, I think people have a lot of hangups about money and that's kind of sad and unfortunate, but it's their money. They can do whatever they want with it. I, and I always tell everyone in my office, like, it, like it's their money. They don't want to do it. They're not, they don't have to do it. Like, you know. What you would do with their money is like what you would do with their money if you made their money, but you're not them and you didn't make it. So you don't get to decide <laughs> how they're going to spend it. And that's the way that it is. And, you know, every person, including myself, has some neuroses about money and some weirdo thing. And, you know, people will spend money on all kinds of things. And then some other thing there's like flip out about it or whatever. And I think that that's just human nature and in the, in the way that it is. But, I, I can't really articulate a specific way that I know, but just after doing this for over 30 years, I just, it's a vibe. You just have a sense and, but I'm not, but it's, but it's, it's a guessing game. You never know really for sure. sure. You don't know sure. until you send them the bills and they pay. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, they're going to do that. And that's, that's great. And, you know, it's like, you know, other times like, you know, you start on a job and then you know, you have a budget and it's like a reasonable, nice budget, but it's nothing crazy. And then you go out shopping and the client sees something and they're like, I love that. And it's like three times the budget, like, and they don't bat an eye at it and you're like, Oh, okay. They, they want to go th- in that direction and that level. And so, you know, just pay attention. I mean, I spend a lot of time just paying attention and, and trying to make it feel natural. And but the, the minute they get in there, like, and even if it's an elevation because you know, a lot of people are very aspirational and they were at one space and then they did something and they got to another, another level, whatever, and they're moving into like a better life. But Like it doesn't feel awkward to them. It feels like, okay, this is who we are now. and like, this is our life. And they like move right into it and it feels natural and comfortable to them. And because I think at the end of the day, your home is the most important part of your life.
0: To that point,
1: Robert, as we,
0: as we wrap up this conversation, you're in the process of moving yourself. I am. And I wonder what you are perhaps discovering about where you find yourself with how you're feeling about things and how you're thinking about things. You, Your position is very different than years ago, right? You've achieved your own level of, of success. And, yes, and, absolutely. Right? And so I imagine there are quite a few things that probably feel different and and you see things differently
1: none of that is lost on me at all i yes i i feel like and i try to like teach the people in my office and like you know i understand this because i'm going through the same thing and you have to mm. have an understanding and a certain amount of compassion and empathy for the client there's a lot of anxiety and stress and pressure and all these things associated to all these things as well and you know like we have one client right now who's you know, lived in a house, her house for 30 years, and she has to move out to renovate it. She knows she has to do it, whatever, but it's really stressful for her. It's given her a lot of anxiety. And she's been, you know, in this safe place for 30 years. And now she has to live in a hotel. And, you know, it's just, it's unsettling. And, you know, Mm. and, and it makes people anxious. And then that creates a whole other thing that, you know, we have to, absorb and deal with and 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 hopefully help make the client feel comfortable and shake a little bit of the anxiety and stress and you know and all that kind of stuff but like it's a real thing i mean so it's it's it is great to be able to experience that and it makes me better at my job but like it's a fun process and you know it's exciting for me to renovate this space and design the entire thing it's exciting for me to have a home for my art collection and my furniture collection and, and all that and so Even if I decide after three years that like I want to live in Soho again or the West Village or whatever, I think it's fun to have that experience and do something else. And, uh, you know, my son's grown and I'm single and like, I don't, I have nothing holding me back. So why not? As we, as we close
0: out, does it, does it feel though, like something is going to change in a, in a big
1: way for you? In terms of the economy, or just in terms of well, anything? no,
0: I mean, I feel like for you, I, I'm not, I know you've got your head down. You got lots of projects. You got things going on. But I, I just sense that part of you, and I, and I was, I was half joking with the Dylan entree into the business to help you make that transition. Right. I mean, I would love that, and right. I'm, I'm guessing you would too. But I'm feeling like something structurally needs to change for you sooner rather than, than later, yeah. Did you, did you used like, to be a therapist? Well, I talked to a lot of people, Robert. <laughs> I spent a lot of time, you know.
1: If I could do anything, if I won yes. the lot if I became the heir to some person I didn't <laughs> know I was the heir to or whatever, and I had a billion dollars tomorrow and I could do whatever I want, I would definitely do the hotel thing. I would create my own brand of hotels. I would live that and I would transition out of design and I would, that would be my life. I'd probably live at those hotels, I and have so much admiration for Andre Bellage. I think like what he's done and what he created, yeah. he's my idol, that's a person that I would fashion my hotel thing kind of after that kind of person. But you know, that's a huge risk for me and I wouldn't really mm. do it unless, I'm not gonna do any kind of, I wouldn't raise money with people that I know unless I'm really sure that it's gonna go someplace. I'm not, right. I, I wouldn't, I don't take any of that lightly. And I, I, you know, I have, I have a lot of clients and friends, and like, who's like, you know, what do you want to do? Like, how much do you need? Yeah. But like, right, w- when I really feel like it's the right thing and it's going to happen, yeah, I, I would do that. I mean, that's the American way, and certainly the New York way. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's fun. I mean, like, I like that. I like business. Yeah. And again, like apropos to what you were talking about before, like I think I've done well in business because I think like that and I can talk to my clients about their businesses, about about everything in a way that maybe another person can't. And not of course other people can too, but like yeah, I just like I just feel natural in that environment. And I kind of Mm you know i guess that goes back to my dad and like he included me in everything and i was always around like influential people and important people and i just felt comfortable and at ease around that and good at doing that so and i enjoy it it's fun but i think that like whatever i do and whatever is next it all goes back to me and the choices that i make will really go back to what my dad said to me thousands of times just do something that you love like i don't ever feel like i go to work like my mm. job is a pleasure do we have problems? Of course we have problems. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, this business is damage control central. <laughs> sure. But I like it. I'm really lucky. I like, again, I, I, I am thankful every single day to have the opportunities that I have and to do something that I really have passion for.
0: Well, listen, Robert, I, I so appreciate you making the time and it's such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Anytime.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dan Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.